If you're here for the first time today, and I know many of you are, you have come with the end in sight. We are on week 10 of a 10-week series in the book of Job, but it's bigger than a, it's broader than just a study of the book of Job. It's, it's a study on suffering, suffering in view of the cross. Everything in the Old Testament is, is pointing toward Jesus, and, and today, in fact, I'm going to do my best to, don't think this is an apology ahead of time. I'm, I'm just going to ask you to hang with where we go because it's all being wrapped up today. And it may feel like it's disparate parts, one here, one there. I'm going to try to build a logical progression as God has done in his word and point to those places and see how the Lord is working and where suffering finds its place not only in this life, but in the life to come. Suffering has an impact there. So if you walk out of here saying, I don't have any idea what he was talking about. It's not my fault. You know, you're just not hanging. That's all I can say. Just kidding. Job is mysterious and confusing. The story that's in Job is very, very confusing until, as we saw last week, God shows up and presents himself to Job. Actually, Job is still pretty mysterious and confusing after God shows up. Even so, we are blessed with the benefit of an elevated view with regard to the book itself and in view of the cross as far as suffering as a whole. We get to understand this in Christ. It was 2,000 years most likely Probably Job was written around the time that Abraham lived, some 2,000 years before Jesus ever came. And we get all, we get the advantage of not only that, but 2,000 years of church history where people have thought and prayed and studied and, and understood this book. And more and more we are standing on the shoulders of giants as we look back at Job. Dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants. Even with our enhanced view, we are left without many of the answers we feel we ought to have. Bella, who sang so beautifully this morning, has a little sister that many of you don't know. Two months, I think, to the day after... My wife, Linda, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Sarah called me, tumor, and Sarah called me and said, we're at the hospital with Callie, and she has a brain tumor. And the Moody's and the Tallies were just bound together in that moment. And the days go by, and and you see little Callie here and there, but, you know, many of you are new, and you don't even know that story. You're going to hear it after the first of the year. Chad's going to share some of that with us. But the suffering that we endure, so many different kinds of suffering. We just don't, we're we're left without the answers we feel like we ought to know. I think most of us would agree with Michael Card, who said, the God of the completed equation is a God who is beyond all equations. He is wild and impossible and totally other, unknowable. That's what chapters 38 through 42 
are all about. In other words, even if you're certain that you have God all figured out, you don't. In fact, you have no idea. God answered almost none of Job's questions. But rather, he challenged Job to explain the ways of the Creator. Were you there, Job, as we read earlier, when I created the universe? Were you there? Are you able to to restrain evil? Are you willing, Job, to accuse me of doing wrong so that you can be right in your own mind? You know, when we say things like, well, my God wouldn't, that's what we're, that we're, we're Job, we're in Job's shoes. Because that's exactly what Job said. My God wouldn't do this. God didn't answer him, he just said, you know as much as I know. God didn't deny his role in Job's suffering. But rather, he pointed out that Job could not possibly understand the wisdom of his design. And the moment God began to speak, Job realized the error of his accusations. After God spoke, Job realized that Yahweh had created the world perfectly, even though evil exists represented by behemoth and and leviathan. Maybe those are some other animals like rhinoceros and, you know, dinosaurs before the flood and all they also represent evil. And God restrains evil. Nothing is beyond God's control. All there was for Job to do was to repent and trust his creator's heart. Today, as I've said, we have a a lot to cover. And we're going to take our cues from Job 42. After God had spoken, Job responds with repentance We can't restore ourselves, but God always restores the repentant soul. Our text is Job 42, so if you would please stand as we read God's word together. It's appropriate, you know, to be able to say as we read this last chapter of Job, those of you who are able to stand, some of you were able to stand not many months ago and you can't today. I know where your heart is. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then Job answered the Lord after God had spoken to him. And he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I understand that now, God. And then he repeats God's words. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job responds, therefore... I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then God, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, 
For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord (coughs) accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job, Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of his first Jemima, and the name of his second Keziah, and the name of his third Kiran Hapuk. Don't miss those parents when you're thinking of names for your kids, okay? <laughs> and in all the land... There were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Father, um, The best thing in all of this story is that Job came to the end of himself and he said, you're God and I'm okay with that. In fact, I am so grateful to be connected with you. Lord, come to us and speak to our hearts. Comfort, convict, encourage, thrill, redeem, restore our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. I'm going to guess that the scripture we have just read strikes you in different ways. I mean, for many, it's a relief because it's a restoration of order. For those of you who are very structured with your lives, it's one of the most difficult things about suffering. Everything is thrown out of whack, and now everything is restored. Okay, it's he wishes he hadn't gone through it, but now everything is back on track, and and it's going to be all right. For others, it's a perspective to know that God will forgive your anger and doubts because some of you have said horrible things in your suffering and you, and you regret those things that you've said. And even in his rebuke, there is incredible love and mercy and grace that is shown to you. It may help some of you to rest in God's sovereign plan for you. That he's got everything under control. As difficult as it seems, it's, it's, it's his plan and it's okay. For some of you, though, Job may seem a bit like a fairy tale. Because in the end, everything works out. And not only has everything not worked out for you, but the worst possible thing has happened. Don't forget, that's exactly how Job felt in the beginning of this book. When he said, I wish I'd never been born. The thing that I have greatly feared has come upon me. I was always worried about this and there it is. 
Even so, it seems that Job gets everything back. Doesn't always work out that way, but in the same way that Job's suffering was extreme and pointed to Jesus, so his repentance and restoration pointed to Jesus as well, pointed to the story of the gospel. Here's the way we... we, This is one of the ways that we can understand the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, promise of restoration. And it's not in a linear, a nice, linear, organized fashion that we, so many of us, want, but it's kind of cyclical. I mean, we understand that that God uh, created the world and then man fell and then there's redemption and a promise that one day everything is going to be made back like it was before. Um, so is the gospel a New Testament thing strictly? Is it exclusively New Testament or was it there in the Old Testament? Well, even though Jesus was not in the equation in the Old Testament, this cycle was being played out over and over and over. Um, the fall affected everything. Adam and Eve were created with original righteousness. That's the theological term for saying that Adam and Eve were made perfect. That Not perfectly, not only perfectly, but they were perfect before the fall. But the fall affected everything, including God's creation. I mean, nothing works perfectly anymore. A lot of things work well. And because of the process that God established... Not only when he said, let the earth or let there be and there was, but also the process that he started when he said, let the earth sprout and the earth brought forth. All of the advances in technology, we have come a long ways. And it was all according to God's order. Now, you can misuse anything, but don't deny the beauty of God's plan and allowing us to figure out a lot of things that we didn't know before. But nothing works perfectly. And sooner or later, everything breaks. And we are reminded that the world is fallen. We would experience eternal death, separation from God for eternity in hell if God had not made a way to redeem us through faith in Jesus. One day he will restore all of creation to a state of perfection. And all will be as it was before sin, and as it was intended to be, that's the gospel. The gospel is so much more than the plan of salvation, something to believe in, to become a Christian, though it is certainly that. The the gospel cycle repeats itself over and over in all of Scripture, in all of history, and in our lives. We're born, we recognize our sin one day, And we cry out to Jesus to redeem us, and he does. And it's like he puts us on a new path. And and things that were never right are now right. And it's almost like he's done a new thing in us. He's created this new thing in our lives. And then we sin or or, or we get sick or somebody hurts us. And we're down there again. And yet God is redeeming that situation even Uh, according to his plan and for his glory. And the cycle starts all over again. Gospel truth is in Job as it is in all of the Old Testament. 
But we're going to understand Job better when we understand the ways that God worked before Jesus and how he works now in view of the cross. Not going to have time to write this down for those of you who are note takers, but I'm going to make both the slides in this message available in the city, and then hopefully, even if it doesn't fully take root today, you can come back and and think about it later. Uh, Life before Jesus in the Old Testament worked this way. God said, if you love me and obey me, I will bless you in every way imaginable, physically, materially, spiritually, your children and your grandchildren, to hundreds of generations, everything will be good for you. And that's how life typically worked in the Old Testament. Before Christ, those who came close to keeping the law did well. Look, you don't have to make a hundred on every test to make an A, you know? And so those who, who lived generally toward God's plan were blessed. Problem was, nobody's capable of full obedience. And that fallen nature shows itself over and over in the gospel cycle of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, (coughs) played itself out over and over, revealing the need for a once and for all redeemer. Maybe this is seen, is not seen anywhere more clearly than it is in the book of Judges. You ever read Judges? You know, I think maybe the book of Judges is the one book I hear more than any other people say. I went into Judges thinking, you know, I was expecting to see all these heroes. And man, there are no heroes in there. There aren't. In fact, remember this. There are no heroes in the Old Testament. The only hero is Jesus. But see, that's the last point here. God was painting a picture pointing toward Jesus. Job's suffering were extreme, and it sort of painted a picture of what Jesus' suffering would be like. (laughs) And Job's restoration points a picture of what the full end of the gospel cycle is going to be. Well, let's think about life in view of the cross in the New Testament. The picture of God's plan for redemption in Jesus is clear. See, the Old Testament is kind of like this. It's like pieces of the puzzle. The, the pieces are, are, are put in place, but some of them aren't even connected with anything else. It's just like a, you get a little bit of a view here and a little bit of a view there, but they're not connected. But when Jesus comes on the scene, a whole lot of the puzzle is filled in. And now we know God. Did you know that the name in which these children were baptized today, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said those words in Matthew 28, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the first time God's name was fully revealed then. So a lot has come into shape, but there's a whole lot of the picture that's still fuzzy. And so we're called to live by faith. The call to follow Jesus is a call to a cross-centered life, as we saw very clearly in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said, you're going to follow me? Take up your cross. People were like, what? And the cross was a horrible thing, and nobody ever thought of the cross in a positive way, ever, even if your enemy was put on a cross. You couldn't think of it that way. So that cross-centered life, what's the primary purpose of a cross? It's death. 
And when God doesn't heal, it's confirmation of humanity's fallen state and the world's need for Jesus. Therefore, rejoice in suffering. We're called to rejoice in suffering. You know why? Because ultimately it makes us more like Jesus. And it shows the world that the greatest suffering in all of history was accomplished for us on the cross of Christ. And there is life in believing. When God chooses to heal, it's just a picture of the final restoration to come. Therefore, rejoice in suffering and rejoice in healing, especially rejoice when others are healed and you're not. Everything has its place. I don't mean especially in the sense of look for that opportunity to present itself. But I mean, you need God's grace. But when we understand that this is God's picture that's being painted, we can rejoice at whatever happens when someone is healed and that healing points to a day when there'll be no more suffering, when everyone will be healed. Job makes more sense when we read it in light of the ways that God worked before Jesus and how he works in the last days. As scripture refers to the time since Jesus' death and resurrection. (laughs) Job didn't didn't get any of this, but when God spoke to him, he was okay. G.K. Chesterton suggests as God was rebuking Job that Job feels the terrible and tingling atmosphere of something which is too good to be told. The refusal of God to explain his design is itself a burning hint of his design. Parents, when your children want to know, there are some things that can't be explained, right? If they trust you, though, they know it's going to be good. You notice in Job's response to God, he didn't offer any counterpoints. He didn't say, okay, God, well, that's a good point, but now let me, let me just go here with you. He simply said, I have spoken about things of which I had no idea. I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I am so grateful that we are in a church uh, where none of us are afflicted with such tendencies. Actually, we're eaten up with such tendencies, aren't we, to... Speak about things of which we don't know. If I ask you to define sin with one word, what would you say? Most likely you're going to say disobedience, something like that. How about this one word answer? Unbelief. Adam and Eve didn't believe that God had given them everything they needed for life and happiness. They didn't believe that they would actually die when they disobeyed God. In short, they didn't believe that God was all that they needed. For Job, everything cleared up when God spoke, even though nothing was explained. Why? Because Job believed the word of the Lord and repented of his lack of trust, his unbelief. For Job, everything cleared up when God spoke. Because he repented of his unbelief, his lack of trust. The lesson of Job 
is the lesson of the Bible. I really wrestled with whether or not to go with this. I asked my rabbi buddies, you know, what they thought, and they were, you know, hmm, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying here, and you're going to have to sit with this. But the lesson of the Bible is the, the lesson of Job is the lesson of the Bible. And they affirmed it fully, by the way, so I'm not going without support. Believe God, and it will be counted to you for righteousness. Isn't that what happened with Abraham? Isn't that repeated in in Romans and Galatians? And when Habakkuk, when the whole world was about to fall apart before his lives, before his eyes, he said, the just shall live by faith and don't. A number of New Testament books contain those words. Believe God and it will be counted to you for righteousness. Everything else is secondary and finds its place in life as you follow God's strong and beautiful word to you. Jesus. Let that sink in for just a moment. Would you close your eyes? I just want to call you to believe. Ask God for the faith to believe that He is sovereign and He is good. Ask Him for the faith to believe because I know your faith is weak. Believe that Jesus suffered in your place so that you can live with him for eternity where there will be no more suffering, no more doubt, no more concerns that your suffering will return. Believe that God's perfect plan for your life moves through the cross and that the beauty of his plan will be revealed in his time even if that is in eternity. Believe that Jesus is holding on to you, not the other way around. Believe when you are curled up in a fetal position, writhing in pain, or moaning from emotional despair, that Jesus is holding on to you. Hold me, Jesus, I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? If you know that, sing it. Hold me, Jesus, I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? You can open your eyes. When God had finished speaking with Job, he addressed Eliphaz as representative of Job's three comforters. (laughs) Don't you wonder how Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar uh, felt when God was rebuking Job? I mean, I imagine that they were terrified right along with Job because God had shown up. I mean, I suppose it's possible that they were thinking, yeah, God, get him. This is what we've been trying to tell him. I'm glad you're setting him straight. Uh, If that was their sentiment, it was unfortunate. 
uh, indeed, but it's a good reminder for us to be careful how we think about others who are grieving. There is one thing that people who are grieving share in common. Everybody else has an opinion about how you're grieving. Well, he's, he's just too sad or she's not sad. Don't be that person. You don't know until you're there. Well, they should have done this. They should have done that. Stop it. You don't want God to show up to you like he did to Eliphaz. You think it was tough on Job. It wasn't good for his three friends. Immediately after God informed Job that he had no idea what he was talking about, he told Job's friends that they hadn't spoken rightly about God as Job had. What? Job has spoken rightly about God? I mean, he's just through, gotten through saying, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. And now he turns over here and he says, you guys messed up. You're not like my servant Job, who spoke rightly. Two things. First, while Job had asked God for an explanation of his suffering, Job's friends had smugly, pointed out that God was justly judging Job. He wasn't, of course, which leads us to the second thing. Job was a believer. One day, God would punish Jesus on behalf of all who believe God's promises, including Old Testament saints. Now, this is tricky. Romans 3.25 tells us that God decreed that Jesus' blood was a propitiation for sins. In other words, a satisfaction. Propitiation means satisfaction. Jesus died in our place. God looked on Jesus' blood and he was satisfied. In fact, John Stott says that the wrath of God was exhausted on Jesus. No more wrath left for us. And we're also told in Romans 3.25 that that enabled God to delay punishment for Old Testament sins. In a very real sense, God saw Job in Jesus, just like he sees you and me in Jesus. It's not that Job or any other Old Testament saint was looking forward to God coming to earth and dying on a cross for our sins. Nobody got that. Nobody. But God was looking forward to the cross. Just like he was looking forward to the cross when you made the worst mistake of your life. Just like he is, he is looking to the cross right now. You came to church this morning having a fight on the way over here and you're thinking, what in the world? Just like you, you're gonna, he's going to be looking at you through Jesus for all eternity. So in the Old Testament, the saints weren't looking forward to the cross, but God was. And he saw Abraham and Ruth and David and Rahab and Job through Jesus' blood. One of the beautiful lessons of God requiring Job to act as a mediator between God and his friends, Job's friends, is that God just wouldn't allow Job to be angry with his friends. That'd be impossible, wouldn't it? To pray for them, to in many ways, mediates that sacrifice. They were told to sacrifice, but Job was saying, Lord, accept this sacrifice. 
can't do that and be angry. Same as it's for us, we can't really be angry with our friends who mistreat us or say unkind things about us in our grief when we pray for God's mercy and grace to be on them. And it's a beautiful thing that God does. Job was called to mediate between God and these men, just like Jesus mediates between God and man. Read that verse a few weeks ago. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And just like we are called to mediate for one another and pray for one another, and the church as a whole mediates God's message, gospel message to the world. When you share the gospel, you are acting as a mediator between God and the lost. That's quite a picture, isn't it? And once again, it reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, in the same way that Job represented Jesus because of his extreme suffering, he also pointed to Jesus when he prayed for God to forgive his friends, his friends who had been so cruel to him in his suffering. I think it would be fair to say that we're never more like Jesus than we forgive those who sinned against us and we pray for them. The very end of Job informs us that God gave Job twice as many animals and thus twice as much wealth as he had before. But he gave him the same number of children as he had before. Now, some people have pointed out that he had twice as many children as he began with, but ten of them were already in heaven. Uh, Even so, Job would never again talk to those children for whom he had prayed and sacrificed before the Lord and cared so deep. Continually he had prayed for them. He prayed for their spiritual condition, their physical protection. And they had died, every one of them. Even though Job was comforted, I am certain that he grieved his loss until the day that he died. Now if you look at at the way that Job was blessed in the end, you might look at this and say, well, my my suffering is not going to end like this. Consider, first of all, heaven will be incalculably better than Job had it at the end of his life. I mean, what's waiting for you doesn't, Job's blessings doesn't even, don't touch what's waiting for you. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, where we began this study of Job, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you think your suffering in this life is more than you can handle, the glory that God is going to reveal to you will be far better than Job's earthly blessings. Job knows that now, and so would you. As you grow in your understanding of Scripture, and as you understand the ways that God works because of your experience in life, you begin to appreciate the symmetry that is part of God's design, part of His big picture. The last two chapters of the Bible mirror the first two chapters of the Bible. Last two in Revelation, first two in Genesis. Garden of Eden, perfection. New Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, perfection. Only this is better. You know why? We're singing the song of the redeemed. 
You think, let me ask you a question. Do you think heaven will be better with the knowledge of hell or without the knowledge of hell? I think with. You know why? Because not only do we realize what we're saved to, we realize what we're saved from. And that makes it all the more no wonder we'll be falling on our face over and over. Thank you, Jesus. Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about heaven, but it tells us enough that it appears we are invited to speculate. As long as we keep separated our speculation and biblical truth, we understand what's what as far as that is concerned. But again, in just just the understanding of God's symmetry in his creation, It seems to me that what we're missing on this earth as followers of Jesus will be ours in abundance in heaven. And we'll all be equally happy, but we'll be happy in different ways, perhaps. Again, this is just speculation. But but the, the believer who is starving in a developing nation, for that person, life will be a continual feast and banquet. Not only for body, but for soul as well. For the person who has been abused, heaven will be a place of ultimate safety, a secure place where you never again have to be afraid, ever. For the one who is blind, heaven will be a vision beyond description and beyond what others may see. So let me ask you one last question. Do you think heaven will be better having experienced suffering here or not having experienced suffering here? Whatever you're going through right now, on the other side, God's symmetry indicates that it's going to be better than you could in your wildest imagination. If the expected answer to such a question seems too good to be true, it's not. It's the faith that Hebrews 11.1 celebrates. Now faith is the assurance of things, hope for the conviction of things not seen. Charles Spurgeon said, when we get to heaven, we'll find that we had not one trial too many. (laughs) That's encouragement for the future. But there is great benefit for the present in our suffering as well. Since it focuses our hearts and minds on what is important. Matt Papa, whom you know for music more than you do for saying things like this, said it beautifully. Unless we suffer, we will never know whether our joy is in Jesus or it's in our circumstances. How true. Our hope is in Jesus. Sometimes God touches and he goes against the natural order of things and he heals. And that's a picture of what it's going to be one day. But when he doesn't, not only should we be content in our suffering in Jesus, but we can also know that the day comes 
when this is made right beyond our wildest imagination. Let's pray. Well, if you're here today and your hope for eternal life has been in the things that you have accomplished, in the wisdom that you have, abandon it now. Hope in Jesus when he died on the cross. If Jesus was truly God and he died on a cross, there had to be a reason way beyond setting an example for us. He died so that his blood would be shed in a place of the condemnation that we deserved. And when you hide in Jesus, when you repent like Job did and said, I am so foolish, I have sinned and I repent in dust and ashes. And you look to the cross and you believe that Jesus died for you. You are his child, just like that. Do that this morning, would you? As you suffer, even though you some time ago placed your faith in Christ and You want answers, and I want answers for you. I do. Sometimes the answer is just, many times the answer is just, trust me, the Lord says. I've got it worked out, and it's beautiful. It's hard to trust like that, isn't it? Lord, help us. We need you so badly. We're incapable. Even when we think we are, we're not capable of trusting you at that level. But you bring us to that place in your faithfulness because you're holding on to us, Jesus. We give you thanks and praise. Amen. Once again, Michael Card. The God of the completed equation is a God who is beyond all equations. He is wild and impossible, totally other, unknowable. That's what chapters 38 to 42 are all about. But he is also gentle beyond our imagining and available beyond our wildest dreams. He would someday dwell inside us. The unknowable one whose name could not be uttered will someday have a face and a name. And he will be called that name by all those who love him. And with their own eyes, they will look upon the light of that face. Underneath the blood and the sweat of the book of Job lies the exhilaration of this future moment. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Amen. I'm Drew Peterson, a follower of Jesus Christ and an elder here at Grace. Rejoice. He loves us, and he is using us 
to carry out his perfect plan. And it's for his glory. We should rejoice with that. From Thessalonians 2. May our Lord, now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who loves us and gives us eternal comfort and a good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. As the people of God, we say, 